This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you talks with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include emerging trends and technologies, corporate leadership, company culture, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at managing for innovation and why it's time to rethink management in the workplace. Among the topics we'll discuss are why it's better to be employee-centric rather than customer-centric, how scrapping performance reviews helped Adobe reach new heights, and what the org chart of today should look like. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is David Burkus. David is the author of the just-released book, Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. He's an assistant professor of management at Oral Roberts University, where he teaches courses on organizational behavior, creativity and innovation, and strategic leadership. He's also the founder and host of Radio Free Leader, a podcast that shares insights on leadership, innovation, and strategy. If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you'll remember David coming on in May 2015 to talk about his previous book, The Myths of Creativity. Welcome back to the podcast, David. Thank you so much for having me back. I, I guess I did okay last time because I got invited back, right? Yeah, uh, you you were amazing well, maybe last you're here time. Maybe embarrass me again. Who knows? <laughs> no, not at all. Thrilled to have you back. Uh, and let me start off by congratulating you on the release of your new book. It's not out yet, but it will be uh, the day of or the day after this episode goes live. It's called Under New Management. So, congrats on that. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. So let me ask, you're an accomplished writer, and I'm sure you could have written on any number of, of topics as a follow-up to The Myths of Creativity, your previous book. Why did you choose management as the topic for your next book? So um, I didn't. It chose me. No. Uh, <laughs> so one of the interesting things in writing and traveling around and speaking about The Myths of Creativity was – I, I noticed something uh, from the calls I was getting to speak and the company, the emails that I was responding to, et cetera, was that there was this assumption that when we talk about creativity, when we talk about innovation, we're always talking about products, right? We talk about the iPod was amazing and the iPhone was amazing and then the telephone was amazing. We always talk about products. And I, as I was writing this book, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And actually another a person I was interviewing for this book said it beautifully Great leaders, great managers don't innovate products. They innovate the factory. They innovate the company. They, they innovate their policies. They innovate their culture in such a way that allows their people to then invent the products. You know, the, the dirty little secret of Steve Jobs is that he didn't actually invent the iPod or the iPhone, right? Tony Fidel invented the iPod. Johnny Ive was the primary designer on the iPhone. And, and so he led people. And he innovated the company and the business model so that he could get those people what they needed to create that product. And so I think I came to this kind of realization that if we're just thinking about product, we're not thinking about the overall system that we're asking people to work in. So that's really what I set my sights on. Alongside that, you find all sorts of different policies and practices that these innovative companies have that are not – they're not idea generation practices. They're about the overall system we're asking people to work in. And so that's really kind of why I turned my attention to it and wanting to provide – 
the research behind what does this new innovative factory look like? And, and of course, I use factory as a metaphor for any company, but what does it actually look like and why is it so different than what we're all used to seeing either in our own work life or some of us probably see it twice when we, when we work and then when we come home from work and watch The Office? <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me ask you about a, a part of that system for pretty much everybody out there. Uh, email. It's one of the things that you set your sights on in the book, and you cite some amazing stats about the sheer volume of emails that get sent in the corporate world. So let me read a few of those. In 2014, over 108 billion email messages were sent and received every day. Email occupies 23% of the average employee's workday, and that average employee checks his or her email 36 times an hour. So of the most innovative folks that you're seeing out there, what are they doing to keep email from encroaching and overtaking their employees' work lives? Well, in some cases, they're banning it entirely. But no, you're exactly right. We can look at that 108 billion messages sent and received every day. And we can look at that and, and marvel at the amazingness of technology that we can send those messages across the globe that quickly. And we can look at it as this amazing thing, but we also have to be, if we're being honest, we have to look at it for what it is, which is mind pollution, right? And and I, that's not my term. That literally comes from the CEO of Atos who banned internal email entirely inside their company. Basically said it's not, as a tool for collaboration, it's not the best tool. And so they built, they, they call it Blue Kiwi. It's their own, it's, they bought a company called Blue Kiwi and then they made their own internal messaging system. And this shouldn't be a revolutionary concept, tailoring the communication device of your company to the communication needs of your company. But a lot of us just sort of default to email. But, it, you know, if we're being honest, email in the email inbox is a terrible to-do list and it's a pretty bad collaboration tool too. So a lot of these companies are moving towards either outlawing it entirely or putting limits around when it's checked or how it's checked and those type of things in an effort to retake a better, deeper collaboration and to retake a lot of that time, 23% of an employee's workday. That's a lot of time where we think we're being productive, but we're really just trying to clear out our inbox. So David, we hear the phrase customer centric a lot these days, but you write about a, a factor that may be much more impactful to a company's performance over time, employee satisfaction. And interestingly enough, focusing on the customer isn't always the best way to make them happiest. It can be focusing on the employee. So what's the dynamic at play that makes that true? Yeah, so this is a weird um, sort of glitch in human behavior, right? So we, I, I'm totally cool with the idea of being customer-centric. I'm not cool with the idea that the customer is always right. And the research that you, you just cited is exactly why. The, the number one predictor of customer loyalty is not being customer-centric. The number one predictor of customer loyalty is employee satisfaction, is the idea that if you take care of your people – then your people will take care of their customers. And so a lot of the companies that I profile in underdo management have done exactly that. They've essentially said, we're putting customers second as a company, as a leadership, we're putting customers second because we're putting our frontline employees, the ones who interact with the customer every day first. We're going to make sure they have the tools that they need in order for them to then put our customers first. So it's not that you're ignoring customers or anything like that, but it's this realization that, you know, the, the best sort of simple analogy I can use, is it's sort of like a diet, right? It's, let's say your goal is to lose 30 pounds. Well, you don't lose 30 pounds by just saying, we're going to lose 30 pounds. You, you lose it by paying attention to diet diet, paying attention to exercise, all of those sort of things. It's an outcome. It's not something you can necessarily focus on. When you focus on customer satisfaction, it's like focusing on calories in or calories out in the case of the diet. The, the result of that focus is 
customer loyalty. But you have to focus on them. And we've, I think a lot of us have probably worked for an organization at some time, maybe even just when we were working like retail as a teenager or whatever. But we've worked in that situation where the customer was always right, turned into our manager throwing us under the bus when there was a dispute between us and a customer. And how likely are you to then want to put future customers first? You're not. The, the only way that you can continue to, to have a workforce that interacts with a customer that continues to put customers first is if you actually put them first. And from, from tech companies like HLC Technologies to Starbucks, there's a lot of different examples of focusing in on that front line or what some people call the value zone the zone of the company that interacts with the customer, putting them first and giving them whatever they need to put customers first. And the end result is that customer satisfaction, that customer centricness, but it comes out in a way that we don't expect. Yeah. And you know, one thing that makes all employees happy is vacation. Uh, a lot of companies, <laughs> mine included, uh, and Netflix has, as they documented as part of a famous slide deck on its company culture, they've instituted uh, unlimited vacation policies. What has research shown about how companies that institute that policy fare compared to the competitive compared to the competition? So it's interesting. If we lump all unlimited vacation policies together, then the research is mixed. There are all of these arguments about whether or not people take more or less vacation because of the policies, whether or not that they are more engaged or less engaged. But it comes down to this. I actually think there's a missing narrative in this piece of unlimited vacation. The dirty little secret is that it's not actually about the vacation policy. When you read Netflix's culture deck and you read their rationale for why they went to unlimited vacation, it was because of conversations that basically went like this. Hey, you don't track our eight to five hours. You don't track what we're doing on the days when we are working. Why are you tracking uh, the days that we're not working? And the senior leaders of Netflix didn't have a good answer. They said, you're, you're absolutely right. So we'll just, we'll give that time back to you. We'll trust that you are, can manage your own schedule of when you take vacation. We'll move to an unlimited vacation policy. And the vacation is awesome, but it's actually about the trust. And there's a ton of research. There are decades of research, even looking at chemically. Trust is actually a chemical. It's called oxytocin. We feel oxytocin and we're more likely to feel trusted and act trustworthily. And when you do that, that's, that's the actual interesting reciprocal nature of trust. When you demonstrate trust to someone, that you trust them, they're more likely to act trustworthy back to you. And that's what Reed Hastings and Patty McCord and the senior leaders of Netflix were doing. And I, I imagine that's what your company is doing too. When it's not about necessarily the vacation days, it's about saying, we trust you to manage your schedule like an adult. And you'll respond with that with trustworthiness. And in, the, in under new management, I even look at companies that didn't do it all trustworthily. Some of them were using unlimited vacation to literally swindle people out of paid time off, and the employees picked up on it. So it's less about having a standard vacation policy, having unlimited vacation, taking lots of rest or not taking lots of rest. And it's more about how do any of your policies, vacation inclusive, how do any of them demonstrate that you trust your employees first and that you're looking for trustworthy behavior in return? Yeah, definitely. It's February 18th when we're recording this. Something that a lot of people have probably just gone through recently is the annual performance review. Now, it's something that Adobe did away with a few years ago, at least in part because of a jet-lagged HR executive's comments in an, inter in an interview with India's Economic Times. So would you mind sharing that anecdote and then talk about what kind of employee review system they did make a change to in 2012? Yeah. Yeah, Don, Donna Morris. Uh, this is, is a fascinating story. So 
she's traveling to India to check out a bunch of things. I mean, she manages the human resources for a global, a super innovative global company, Adobe. And she's traveling there and she she really, I mean, probably maybe didn't do her schedule right or, or what have you, but just jet lagged, is tired. And the first thing on the docket is this interview with India's Economic Times. And they say like, so, you know, are you planning any big changes in how you deal with people? And for some reason, I mean, she had been talking about it a bit before and it was in her mind, but for some reason in the cloudiness of jet lag, she just goes, we're doing away with our uh, performance review policy. And so that becomes the headline on this newspaper. And it doesn't take very long for that to get back to the United States where Adobe's HQ is. And so suddenly they're in this big discussion and they have this great discussion with their uh, employees about if we're going to overhaul the review system, what should we look like? And, and in the end, they basically threw the whole thing in the trash can. They basically did away with it entirely. What they, what they found is what a lot of research supports, which is the goal of a performance review is, is valid and is absolutely necessary. The goal of giving people feedback, letting them know how their performance has been and how they can get it better, hugely important. Doing it on an annual basis, hugely ineffective, right? And then also doing it on an annual basis and assigning people to certain labels hugely ineffective because when you when you say like oh so and so you you meet our expectations or you underperform our expectations or you're superior whatever rating you give them if it's not the top one the whole conversation turns into why am i not the top one right and now now it's not a conversation about feedback it's an argument about whether or not you got rated fairly and that doesn't help people get better. And so what Adobe did was basically scrap the entire thing and then trained all of their managers on how to have ongoing conversations, what they call check-ins. And the check-in works like this and can be as little as 10 minutes, but it happens on a regular basis and it's an informal thing. It's not documented. And they focus on three things. Growth and development. What do you need? Where are you looking to go? How can I help you? Expectations, both what do you, what do we expect from you and what, sh- what can you expect from us? And then feedback on performance. And doing that informally lowers that barrier of arguing over whether or not they're actually doing an accurate picture. And doing it more regularly gives people the feedback they need to actually make a change. I mean, the, the simplest way that I can explain sort of the lunacy of our annual performance review system is, is this. Imagine playing a sport, any sport you want. You work hard, like you, football, right? You, you work hard, you play football, the time has expired, and a year later we'll tell you the score. It's just, it's not going to work. You're not going to get any better if you don't know how you did for that long of a time after you actually put in the performance. Yeah, definitely. So, so let me move to a little bit earlier in the management process, the hiring process. So you write about the way that automatic screens their employees or possible employees and the way that they do it is they put people on literal projects for three to eight weeks. Now, I know not everyone can do that, and we'll talk a little bit more about what you might do if you can't. But why is that such a powerful predictor of cultural fit? So so Automatic is a great company, and most people may not be familiar with Automatic, but they are familiar with their primary product, which is WordPress. And WordPress powers almost a quarter of every web, of all websites on the internet. And they are a fully dispersed company, which I think is really interesting. They're, they're a fully dispersed company, but they're a fully dispersed company that realizes the power of needing to hire people that are not just superstars, but are good collaborators, good um, – that can be trusted to do projects. And so what they do is they have a system in their hiring process called trials. You go through a couple of different interviews with a couple of different people, and if we feel like you're a good fit – We'll put you on a trial. We'll pay you like an employee, but you'll be a contractor. It'll, we'll put you on a real project, right? Even, even so far as we'll give you the same security clearance that we give employees and you'll work with us 
for three to eight weeks, however long, however long it takes to get a sense of whether or not this person would be a good asset, a good team player, et cetera. And then the people that you work with will have a conversation. And in the end, if you end up, um, if it ends up working, you'll have a final interview, which I, I think this is actually really cool too. You have a final interview with Matt Mullenweg, the, the founder of Automatic, and it'll be entirely text-based because he doesn't want to be, he just wants the content of your answers, right? Because in essence, all of the other um, nonverbal things and personality things have been screened in that trial process, right? Because essentially all of that is stuff that matters on how well you work with the team. And so the trial process kind of proves that. And then in the end, it's really just his call based on whether or not, you know, the content of your answers, whether or not you're a fit. The, the core element of – and I think to me it's awesome because it sends the message that the core element of the interview process is this trial, actually working on a project, seeing how well you do. And, and I think it's brilliant. There's a, there's a lot of research that supports a lot of our experiences, which is that someone can be a great interviewer and a terrible employee. And trials takes care of that because you have to – you could be a subpar interviewer and if you're great on trials, you'll end up getting the job because you were great to work with and you really did perform well. Yeah. And and for those companies that, that may not be able to put somebody on a three-week project, any recommendations for how you could do like a, a short-lived trial version of, of, of that kind of uh, yeah, testing ground? So if you if you don't have the chance to do it like in a contractor way or something like that, I think there's a couple different ways you can you can do it. The the reason trials work so well is that multiple people and usually the people who will end up working with the person have a say in the decision. So anything you can do to do that, even if it's just having other employees that will be on that prospective hires team in on the interviews with you, some companies go so far as actually pulling the management back and having the whole interview process run by the people who are going to be on that person's team. I think that's a huge thing because you can get a sense for how well this person does. One of the other things you might do is might even do sort of a probationary period. So you, so managers and HR managers make the decision on who to bring into the company and, but, and where we think we're going to place them. But if they are placed on a team after 30 or 60 days that they don't work well with, that team can kind of boot them out and we have to find them somewhere else to work. So it gives the team a say in it protecting the integrity of their team, not just sufficing to the manager's experience, et cetera. Um, and then the other thing you could do, and I, I don't talk about this in underdue management, but it's kind of one of those ideas for exactly that if you're in that situation. I think there's a lot of companies that are ex- exploring the idea of having the, the team of interviewees working on a project together. Maybe even it's just short term. We're just bringing everybody in for an afternoon and we're going to give them some task and we're just going to step back and observe how will they work on the team. You're not going to get a perfect fit for what it's like to work on their future team without in- involving their future team, but you'll still get a sense for how well they work on any team because you're watching how well they work in that team. Yeah, definitely. And, and sticking with hiring for a second, you write in the book about the perfect number of interviews to have and uh, the answer is not that many. So Google found that after four interviews, they had an 86% chance of making the right hiring decision with additional interviews only adding 1% more certainty. Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that just such a Google stat to you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I should be, and it should be clear, this is the perfect number of interviews for Google is four. It may sort of vary. But I think it's really interesting because prior to doing this research, Google was actually famous for a really long, drawn-out interview process with sometimes up to 30 interviews over six months. They were running into situations where, I mean, they were so committed to the idea of hiring as a team 
that they they wanted everybody, not just your current team, but people who might be on your future team to have a say in whether or not you get hired. And they were so committed to that that sometimes they were making job offers to people whose response was, I got a job with this other company a month ago because I never heard back from you, right? So they realized, okay, that's obviously a bad thing. And they go in because they're Google and they've got data. So they go in and they dig through all the data and they find out exactly that, that after about four interviews with four different people, we got a pretty good chance of making the right call. Additional interviews don't add all that much more clarity to it. So we'll, we'll, we'll peg it around four. But it's still, I think that's still better than what most companies do, which is you may have two to three interviews with only one to two people, right? A, a lot of companies' interview process is initial phone screen, maybe with the manager and maybe with somebody from HR. If that works, we'll bring you in an interview. And then if that, out of, out of those first round interviews, we'll pick two people who go to a final round interview and then we'll pick for those two. Right? At no point are you involving the team. At no point are you involving the future team, et cetera. And so what I love about that Google stat is it doesn't take that many more interviews than you're already doing to get the team involved. So really there's not, there's not a lot of excuse for why not involve the team. It only takes two more interviews. Yeah. So let me ask you about org charts. You did your, your uh, homework in the course of writing the book and you found that org charts have been around since 1855. So surely a thing or two has changed in the business world since then. What do you think the modern day org chart should look like? Yeah, uh, well, more than a thing or two has changed in that business world for <laughs> sure. I found this fascinating. I wanted to look up the the origins of the org chart. Like you said, invented in 1855. And I think it's important to note too, it was invented by somebody who managed a railroad. The railroad is the ultimate definition of an org chart that doesn't need to change. I mean, you lay down that track and it's pretty much there. You're not going to make very many changes to the line after that, right? So you don't have to make too many changes to the org chart. But most of us don't work for the railroad anymore. We work for a company that that the even the product that we were hired to work on or what we are working on might be entirely flipped six months from now. We work in a changing environment where really the org chart and the unit of design being the job. You know, when I say org chart, most of us are thinking lines and boxes and the boxes mean positions or jobs. The job as the building block of an org chart it's probably not what we need anymore. And we need to be thinking more about the project as the building block in Orchard. Who's working on what project? And when that project's over, where are they going? And it's interesting. I wasn't the first person to propose this idea. Roger Martin, who's, a, who's brilliant when it comes to innovation, design, thinking, all of these sort of things, mentions this in an article called Rethinking the Decision Factor. And he mentions that organizations that do this, that design around the project, might have greater resiliency because they don't need to lay off whole wings of people on the org chart when times are bad and then hire whole wings of people on the org chart when we're needing to expand. They can just shift people around in the project. And it turns out that in addition to being better for sort of company resiliency, the teams are actually much better when they're ha constantly rotated around. The, the best teams are actually fairly temporary. They come together around a project. They disband back into the ether of the whole organization. And a new team with a little bit different mix is formed around the next project. And that's not the, the system that most of us work in. Most of us have an org chart. We report to a manager. And that will stay in that position until we get promoted or get fired or leave. And so for five, I mean, for five years, in my case, I was on the same team, quote unquote, for five years because the definition of team was just people who report to that guy or later that girl, but still people who report to that position. And it didn't really, we didn't get all that much collaboration. It didn't work all the well because honestly, if you're together for five years, you start to think a lot alike. But if you have this constant rotation of people, you start to get new, fresh ideas in there that really you benefit from. So 
the unit of design for the org chart needs to change from the job to the project. And I describe this as rather than write the org chart in pen, we should be writing it in pencil, able to erase it and make changes whenever the environment or the projects or the situation demands. Okay, so David, let's wrap things up with what should be music to the ears of a lot of the folks listening, at least those that are not workaholics. It comes from Stefan Sagmeister, and it's two words, work less. So why should everybody work less in this hyper-competitive era? So Stefan Sagmeister gave a TED talk a, a, a few years ago, and TED is, you know, TED is the ultimate, like, we're all here to change the world super productive conference, right? It's all sort of like power brokers, et cetera. It's like next to Davos, it's like the world's power conveniences on TED, the world's power workers for sure. Um, and he gave a talk about the power of taking a sabbatical, of taking time off to not only to refresh, which is what most of us think about when we think about sabbatical or vacation, but to learn new skills, to experiment with new things, and to return to the work with sort of fresh eyes. And I think that's hugely beneficial for companies for a couple different reasons. And so in Under New Management, I talk about companies that have whole sabbatical programs like an academic institution would. And it's useful not only because when people are learning new skills, they bring those new skills in. And as I as I talk about in my previous book, The Myths of Creativity, some of the best, most productive people in a knowledge work era are T-shaped, meaning they have their domain of expertise, but then they bring in ideas from all sorts of everywhere. So their their expertise is the deep of, the, of a capital letter T, and then they have a working knowledge of lots of other stuff. And sabbaticals al- allow you that opportunity to grow out the horizontal of your T and to gr- benefit from lots of other ideas that you can bring into the work. It turns out that beyond just the rest and the new knowledge, they're in most companies' interest because when somebody takes a sabbatical and departs from the organization for a short period of time only to come back, it actually gives us, assuming we're doing succession planning, it gives us an opportunity to actually test people in new roles and see if they're ready for those promotions. Or if we know that they're going to be promoted, it gives us a chance to test them, see how they're doing, and see what other development up developmental opportunities they have. So I wasn't expecting to find that second finding. I think, like you said, music to my ears, there's proof, there's science that says sabbaticals are great, so we should work less. But it's interesting to me that even working less and encouraging people to not work for a set period of time can be in the organization's best interest for a lot of reasons we weren't expecting, including for giving people the chance to test themselves out in new roles and develop themselves better for whatever the next role they take on is. Yeah, one of the previous guests who came on was a guy named Michael Gell, but he he is fascinated with you know, the Renaissance and Italian culture, and uh, and and he wrote about Michelangelo when he was painting the Sistine Chapel. You know, drove his um, sponsors, for lack of a better way to put it, crazy because he would disappear for days on end, and they didn't know where he was, and he was they felt like he was not communicative. Uh, but that was his way of going off and recharging his batteries, and then coming back and making a masterpiece. Yeah, and Adam Grant in his his new book literally just came out a couple weeks ago, Originals, has a whole chapter on the benefits of procrastination and basically that same thing, the benefits of stepping back from a project. I would actually call it incubation, which is, again, what a sabbatical allows you to do, but stepping back from that project, learning some new skills, relaxing, allowing it to kind of just, you know, kind of melt into your subconscious. And then when you return to it, you've got all sorts of new, fresh ideas and divergent thinking that can come at it, and you've got a way better project when you return. Yeah, nice. Well, uh, David, thanks so much for joining us today. Congratulations again on the book. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And it will be out. Uh, I, 
this episode will go live on Monday, March 14th, which I believe is a day before or the day of the uh, the official release. Yeah, it, it March fifteenth is the day of the release. So, um, if you're li- if you're awesome and you're listening to this the day before, hold tight. No, actually, just kidding. Go <laughs> ahead. I mean, you, you can still there's still time to pre-order to get a day of. If you're not, it's it's there. It's available. So check it out on on Amazon or wherever you want to buy books. Okay, nice. Well, thanks again, David. Much appreciated. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about David Burkus, you can follow him on Twitter at, at David Burkus. That's B-U-R-K-U-S. You can also visit his website to find out more about his book, download resources related to under new management and the myths of creativity, and become one of the more than 12,000 people that subscribe to his email updates. Thanks once again to David Burkus for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to the next episode of the podcast when we're excited to have Columbia Business School professor and author of The Seventh Sense, William Duggan, on the podcast to talk about The Seventh Sense. Among the topics we'll look at are how Howard Schultz tapped into it to start a little coffee empire called Starbucks, the four elements that are necessary for The Seventh Sense to swing into effect, and the importance presence of mind plays in harnessing one's own seventh sense. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine Podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or SoundCloud. And you can also download our very own iOS app in the iTunes App Store. If you like this week's episode of the podcast, please feel free to share on your social media networks of choice. And if that happens to be Twitter, you can use the hashtag InnovationEngine. Don't forget to tag at 3PillarGlobal as well.